Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Living free. Ah, welcome to the Living Free Show on 3CR Community Radio, A55 kilohertz on your AM dial and 3CR on digital radio. Hi, I'm Bill, and I'd like to acknowledge the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation, traditional owners of the land from which 3CR transmits people-powered radio. I'd like to pay my respects to the elders past and present and to acknowledge that this land was stolen, that sovereignty was never ceded. Each week on the Living Free Show... We showcase one of the many programs that assist in recovery from drugs, alcohol, gambling and food addictions. Our guests share their recovery story and highlight that shared experience saves lives. Today I'd like to give a warm welcome to my guest, Dr. Constance Scharf from Washington State, USA. Um, Thanks for joining us today to share your experience and expertise. Thank you. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. Constance is in Australia on holidays, I think. Yeah, it's my birthday. (laughs) Well, happy birthday. Thank you. So Constance is here and she has both professional qualifications and personal recovery experience. Since completing her PhD in transformative studies, she has dedicated her life towards helping others with mental health, trauma and addiction issues through evidence-based holistic treatments and solutions. Dr. Scharf is an author, a speaker and advocate and specialises in radically transformative personal experience. Dr. Scharf is an award-winning author of books including Ending Addiction for Good and Rock to Recovery and regularly presents in international conferences, workshops and in podcasts. Um, so Constance, really, it's great to have you on the show. I'm, I'm really thrilled to be here. And what I'd like to do is um, just wondering if you'd give us an insight into your early life and talk about, I guess, your journey through addiction into recovery and just let us know how your life went, and then we'll talk at the end about what it's like now. Sure, sure. So I was born in uh, the Central Valley of California in the United States, which is the breadbasket. It is a farming community. My family, we're Jewish, but we had pigs. We're pig farmers, which if you know anything about Judaism, those two things don't go together. And uh, we had pigs and raisins. And so we were pretty isolated out in the country. And uh, when I was... uh, Just coming up on my seventh birthday, my mom and brother were out of town, uh, out were in town actually, to buy a birthday cake for me. And my father sexually assaulted me for the first time. And that went on for about three years. It was so extreme and so frequent that I actually developed amnesia, trauma-based amnesia. And I don't remember most of those three years of my life. Um, my parents started having marital problems and my father got asked for an open marriage and had a girlfriend, quote unquote, who was a prostitute. And she came over one morning after my mom had gone to work and found me washing my sheets, which, you know, 10 year old kids don't do Mm. at, you know, before school on a Tuesday. Right. And she realized what was going on. She said, he'll never touch you again. And she saved me. Wow. And so, but I was in a state of shock at that point. And that's where my memory picks up again. And I remember one important piece of information that I got from my father is he said to me, he said, I don't want to have sex with fat women. 
And I was like, oh, this is good to know. So I should become as big as possible. And I started uh, eating every cupcake, cookie, anything I could get my hands on and started putting on a lot of weight. Then I moved, my parents divorced, I moved to Oregon with my mother, which is in the Pacific Northwest of the United States. And um, I had a lot of chores. And one day I was out doing my chores at the bar and I was 11 years old. And I decided to go in the house and have a drink. And my mother is not a drinker, but we had a little bit of liquor. You know, a lot of families have a little bit of liquor in the house if somebody comes over and they never, we never used it, but we had a little bit um, in the cabinet above the refrigerator. And I poured, I pulled out a, a tall glass and I poured about an inch from every single bottle that we had. So I had, I don't know, five or six shots at 11 years old. So I probably weighed, I don't know, 100, 110 pounds. I don't know what that is in kilos, but not very much. No. 55, yeah. Yeah, 50, yeah. and uh, I, dr- I stood over the sink and pinched my nose and drank it all down. And I was immediately drunk. And I went back, I you know cleaned everything up, went back out to the barn, and I laid in the hay while the whole world spun. And I said, this is how I want to feel for the rest of my life. Mm. So what did it do to you? I realized that I could feel nothing. You know, in um, 12-step literature, in in the big book, it says, you know, Bill says he drank for oblivion. And I really related to that. So when I was a little older, I'd sit in a bar and um, drink until I would would sit there and I would feel the index finger of my left hand with the, you know, fingers of my right hand. And when that finger felt like wood, that's what I was looking for. Now, you know, I'm a good alcoholic, so I kept drinking beyond that point, you know, till I'd fall off the stool or pee on myself or whatever. But um, that's what I wanted to feel. I wanted to feel nothing because the trauma that I had um, experienced was so extreme that I literally could not face it. Um, and still to this day, even though I've had tremendous recovery, um, both in trauma and in in uh, with my addiction, um, I there are certain things that just I have no recall of, mm. um, and I think they're just they're just too horrific. Yeah, can I just take you back a little bit and and talk about your family? So, was your mum aware what was happening to you? you know, it's an interesting question. At that time, you know, I, so I just turned 50 this week, yeah. and so we're talking about before the days when people said, you know. Don't let anyone touch you, wear your bathing suit covers and that sort of thing. So I didn't have the language to tell anyone what was going on. Yeah. Um, so my gut is that she probably did, but that my father was so violent that she probably didn't acknowledge it to herself to save herself. Mm. Um. If I asked her, she would probably say she didn't know. Um, I don't. I don't know what's true I, at this point. You know, it doesn't matter. Um, but I don't know how you can have something like that going on in your home and truly not know. Yeah, I agree. Yes. So uh, another question: Did you have brothers and sisters? I do. I have a younger brother. He's two and a half years younger than me. Yeah. Um. My father wasn't very interested in him because he, you know, he's a little kid, so he took effort. Um, I was older and so, of course, had to be more self-sufficient. And because I was older, was more self-sufficient. And so very often 
if my mom had to do something, run errands, go to town, whatever, she would take my brother but leave me behind. Right, yeah, yeah, dangerous thing. Yes, yes. In that circumstance. Um, so did instead of saying did it affect your schooling, how did it affect your relationship with others in your schooling? So I just, I happen to be an intellectual. I love school. I loved school because, first of all, it wasn't my house, right? So yeah. it's an escape. Um, but I love books. I love learning. And so I always excelled in school. In fact, I remember showing up drunk to a final my freshman year. I finished a three-hour final in 30, 35 minutes, went back, passed out in my room because I was so loaded, and that was the lowest, you know, grade I got. And I still got like a, a 3.5, you know, I mean, it was, school was never, never an issue for me. Mm. I always excelled. In fact, I, I ended up, um, when I graduated university with uh, four national honor societies, national, you know, all that kind of yeah. stuff. Yeah, that's good. Um, can I also ask you about friendships? And did you have difficulty having and maintaining friendships not with women but with right. with boys so mm. once i got to high school and i remember once we went to uh, the local university and for some sort of international dinner or something that they had and having men interested in me that completely shut me down i was like yeah. whoa 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 and so anytime a man would show me some sort of attention, I'd just gain 10 or 20 pounds. Yeah. Um, with women, I did not have any difficulty. And I don't know, that's that's odd, <clears throat> especially because my mom didn't really help me. And my mom and I have not been close. I don't know why I was not um, unable to have close relationships, but I have very good friends from high school. I have very close friendships from university. Um, the friends that I'm here now seeing, I've been friends with since, you know, the days that I was drinking. Um, but I also, I didn't have friends with other alcoholics. I, I was not friends with other alcoholics. I was, I think because I was smarter than a lot of people, I don't want to say as the smartest, but I was, you know, always pretty smart. And when I drank, I didn't usually act out. I usually drank so much that I had failure to launch a lot. Like I just wouldn't get to whatever the event was. I'd pass out at my house before I ever got anywhere to make a fool of myself. And so my friends were just really concerned. And they're like, you, they would always say to me, like, you're such a bright spirit. It's going to be a shame when you die. Yeah. That was really, that was really the take on that. So I had really close, um, relationships and I also manipulated my life so that there were not very many men in it so right out of college I went to uh, the Girl Scouts Girl Guides here in in, mm. in Australia because there, I think there was one man who worked there and sometimes somebody's husband would you know help at the summer camp or something but like mm. it was all women mm. and so I could breathe yeah so uh, talking about alcohol um, it's difficult to access as a child so how did you how did you get it so that's probably the reason I'm alive yeah. is, you know, again, I'm older. So now in the country, you can get anything, heroin, mm. uh, methamphetamine, uh, what fentanyl, ice, whatever you want, cocaine. Back then, you could 
only get alcohol from uh, state-run liquor stores. So it was a 30-minute drive to town, and somebody had to find somebody who to go to the liquor store or, you know, who would buy for you or whatever. So I didn't get to drink all the time. The So while I started drinking at 11, I drank as much as I could any opportunity I had, but it wasn't very often. What ha- what changed is I went to university, right. and university has these magic people who, yeah. in the States, it's 21 to buy, and so they have all these 21-year-old seniors. And I was like, I had enough money, whereas, you know, I a lot of seniors, I'm like, I'll buy one for you and one for me, and they're like, great. So that's when I really started drinking all the time. And I have always drunk all there is. And so by the time I stopped or try, tried stopping drinking when I was uh, 22, I was drinking two liters or more of hard liquor a day as a starting point and my liver and kidneys were giving out. Mm. So was your family concerned about you? Not really. Um, here's the thing. When you do good in school, it covers up a lot of sins, right? Yeah. And so, you know, I was always a very good student. I was, you know, top of the debate team. I was winning all sorts of honors. I was in, the, you know, um, uh, AP, uh, advanced placement college prep courses and all of that. So, you know, one time my mother found some uh, wine coolers um, in my drawer and said something about it. And I lied and said it was for somebody else. And that I'd taken them from a friend at a party. Um, and then once when I came home from university, she's like, you drink a lot of beer, but nothing beyond that. Mm. Nothing beyond that. I knew I was just getting to that point. See, my liver and kidneys, my organs were going to give out before I really got a lot of consequences. So, um, but I was starting to be in a place where jobs weren't going to work out. I was working, um, a lot of outdoor school, outdoor education, which were temporary summer camps, which are temporary jobs. And so they'd keep me on because they needed a warm body and I wasn't, you know, so delinquent that the kids were in danger, but, um, you know, they weren't going to hire me back. And so they give me, all right, well, we'll limp along with you for six weeks, but then you should find another job. And I knew I was going to die. I mean, I truly knew I was going to die. Mm. And so I didn't have a lot of interest in, in work and so forth. That might be a good spot to have a break. Okay. <laughs> uh, we have a uh, song. Uh, this one is Icy Red, and it's by Split Ends, which is a New Zealand band from 1979. <laughs>
the single most important film on the Aboriginal political struggle in the last 50 years. Ningla Anna is the inside story of the Aboriginal Tent Embassy, a gripping first-hand account of an iconic protest action and the young radicals who took control and demanded justice. Rediscover this iconic documentary and a momentous period for First Nations activism in this brand new restoration. Screening Cinema Nova, Carlton, from Friday the 30th of September to Sunday the 2nd of October. A 3CR supporter. A proud black man, proud black man, you should not wonder. Strong spirit. First Nations issues, families, people and stories from a First Nations perspective. Mondays at 1pm on 3CR. Proud black man, proud black man, you should not wonder. Welcome back. Uh, this is the Living Free Show on 3CR, 855 kilohertz on your AM dial and 3CR on digital radio. If you'd like to listen to one of our many podcasts, uh, you can find them on your preferred podcast platform or just Google 3CR Living Free and check out our website. You can also contact us, us via phone, email or Twitter. Uh, today I'm talking with Dr Constance Schaff and we're talking about recovery from mental health, trauma and addiction issues uh, through evidence-based holistic treatments and solutions. Um, so Constance, um, we ended the last one with you saying you knew you were going to die and I think you were 22, 23? 22, yeah. 22. So do you want to tell us how life progressed from that point? Yeah. So um, I was working um, in New York State at an outdoor school. My liver and kidneys were giving out. I was drinking constantly. And my father had a heart attack and fell down dead, like literally one night. Mm. And I knew I was an alcoholic at that point, um, before that, but it really hit me then, um, because my drinking got worse and I had always thought I drank because of my father. I drank cause I was terrified of him and, um, he was dead. There's nothing to be scared of anymore. And I drank more. So clearly that wasn't the problem. Yep. He wasn't the problem. And it was suggested to me that I go to a 12 step program, which, um, took a few months, which, but I did, um, I did, I was 12 stepped very beautifully. I tried controlled drinking, you know, drinking only a six pack a night, which is, you know, by normal standards is quite a lot, but for yeah. me it was nothing. Um, and that was horrifying because it takes me about 10 to 15 minutes to drink a six pack of beer. And, um, and of course I felt sick cause that's not enough alcohol for, you know, the way I was drinking. And I tried to, um, not drink and I was able to go for six days, um, without drinking. So um, I knew that I was an alcoholic and that I needed support. And um, basically when I went to the rooms, um, I didn't want him to win. If I drank, he won. If I died, he won. If, you know, I didn't do something with my life, he won. And so that has really spurred me. Um, I did have initially some difficulty getting sober um, because when I stopped drinking all the trauma came up. And as much as we would like to think that the 12 steps solve everything, they don't, and they don't really address trauma. And so I would, um, the trauma, my trauma symptoms would get so bad. Um, 
that uh, I would I would have to drink again. And then finally, I had a very good friend um, in the rooms, and he was diagnosed with um, a very aggressive form of liver cancer. And he said to me, I said, he said, I want to see you get 100 days clean. And I thought, well, I can stay sober longer than he's going to live. And um, he died when I had about, I don't know if it was 101 or 102 days sober. But the day he died, I was struck sober. And for whatever reason, I didn't have to drink anymore. And that was 24 years ago. Right. Do you want to tell us a bit about going to AA and how the relationship and how it worked for you you in giving, I guess, in giving you motivation? Um, Well, I had so many trauma issues that um, it was suggest. you know, usually we suggest um, uh, gendered meetings, you know, women's meetings or men's meetings because young women tend to get hit on um, by men um, who are trying to do, you know, 13th step there. And I was, it was suggested to me that I go to women's meetings because if a man talked to me, I would no, no joke, lay him out on the floor. I mean, I'd knock your teeth out. Well, this guy, so I mostly went to women's meetings, but this guy went to a meeting on, um, I went to meetings in restaurants. So in Los Angeles, I got sober in Los Angeles and there are a lot of meetings in restaurants. And so I'd go and I'd just eat my way through the meeting. And he was very big. He was over 500 pounds. And uh, he looked at me and he was and he never tried to touch me. He never stood too close, but he looked at me and he said, I understand what you've been through and there's recovery from that. He also was a best-selling novelist and he knew I had wanted to be a writer. And so he just he encouraged my writing. And so we basically binge ate through our meetings together. Um, and so he also was a misogynist and a misanthrope. He wasn't a very nice guy. <laughs> but he he was about my father's age, just a couple of years younger than my father. Um, and he, I was like, this is what my father might have been like if he'd ever gotten help. Now, my father wasn't an alcoholic, but he had mental health issues, obviously. And um, I was like, this is what my father might have been like if he'd gotten help. So, and you know, it's funny because when this friend of mine passed... He had, I don't know, five or six years clean. I've been sober for 24. You know, he was, I think, 55 or 56 when he died. And, and you know, I just turned 50. Like, he was an old guy with a million years, you know, and grumpy. Yeah. And, and now I'm like, wow, like, <laughs> no, that's like, he was so new. You know, he was yeah. so new. But he saw, he saw in me potential. He saw potential in me. Yeah, I think that's the thing that um, people in meetings, if you've been around meetings for a while and people come in, you can see they have potential. Yeah. But it's trying to get them to grasp that potential. Well, you know, what I've seen in meetings is unbelievable kindness. Yeah, sometimes people say things that are rude and out of line and that happens in Mm. any organization that you're ever going to be in. But I came when I was trying to get sober. I think I'd been sober for, I don't know six or nine months and I came to it was actually my first trip to Australia and I came out here and um I I was told where a meeting was you know this is back there's no there's no GPS or no, yeah. you know you called central office and you you know went to a meeting 
I swear, I think it was a men's stag. I think mm. I stumbled into a men's stag. There were like, I don't know, five or six dudes there. And I came in crazy American, you know, all the newcomer problems, loud and busy. And I was like, ah! and they're like, come here and, and talk to us and tell us your things. And then I went home and I was like, I think that was a men's stag. But nobody said, get out of here. You're, you know, and, and maybe it wasn't. Maybe there just happened to be, yeah. you know, just guys there. But I was just like. I've always remembered that where I was just like, these people were just kind to me, mm. you know, and, uh, you know, everywhere, everywhere I've been and, and, and all throughout Los Angeles. And I, I remember calling up before I, before I went to my first meeting, I remember calling up a central office in Los Angeles and I said to the guy, I was like, I, you know, who answered the phone, you know, as Bill or Bob or whoever it was. And, and I said, I think I'm an alcoholic. And he said, well, so am I, you know? And I was like, oh, okay, yeah. You know, and he, he, you know, he told me where a meeting was and I tried to find it, but I was so drunk. I, of course I couldn't. And I looked at the, you know, paper the next day. It was just scribbles. Mm. <laughs> it was somewhere on Santa Monica Boulevard. I don't know. It was just scribbles. But, you know, I ha always had that good experience of kindness in a meeting. I, you know, I'll tell you something else. I, I was five or six days sober, very, very sick. And, um, an A-list celebrity, this is, you know, Los Angeles, an A-list celebrity saw me in uh, the meeting and there were no chairs because they didn't, they didn't save seats for, for newcomers at that meeting. And I didn't know you had to get there 45 minutes early to get a seat, yeah. you know, and the, I didn't park in the right place and all the things. And I was standing, the meeting was just about to start. I could cry. I'm standing by the garbage can cause I was going to throw up. And this, I mean, huge movie star comes over very strong. I didn't, you know, he's an older guy. I thought he would not be as strong as he was. And he held me by the shoulders and held me up against the wall and shouted at somebody, for God's sake, get her a chair. And then he just said the most wonderful things to me while we were waiting for someone to get a chair. And mm -hmm. he was like, you know, don't kill yourself. It's that you're the most important person in the room. You know, all the things we say to newcomers. Mm -hmm. And then he said, do you want to come sit next to me? And I said, no, because I think I'm going to throw up. I should probably stay next to the garbage can. He's like, good plan, you know, <laughs> good plan. And I happened to run into him um, a few years later. When he was the speaker when I was celebrating two years. And in front of a, a room full of about 800 people, including my Australian friends who uh, gave me a, a cake, he kissed me, you know, and because um, I, you know, because I stuck around. That's what you get. Mm in the rooms. It's that kind of support. I mean, how horrible did I look? And, you know, you know how newcomers are sick and pale and I'm probably going to throw up and, you know, I can't even stand up. I was sliding down the wall. That's why he held me up, you know, and, and we just do those kind things for each other. Mm, yeah. Yes. It's, um, yeah. And you can only do it forward. You can't, you can't pay them back because they don't no, need it. No, yeah. they don't need it. No. <laughs> no, that's the thing is people are always like, well, how can I help you? How can I help you? I'm like, guys, I'm, yeah. I'm, a, I'm a doctor and I got, I, I do have a support system, right? Yeah. But I, I I don't need what you can, what you have to offer. Yeah. You yeah. help the next one. Because, you know, now I've been sober for so long, like, I don't think newcomers on the whole relate to me that much anymore. No. You know? And so I'm like, help someone who's got three days or three months, you know, because they don't relate to me. Mm. So do you want to talk a bit about how getting sober affected your your life and, and your relationships with family and friends? Yeah, so I think everyone's kind of just 
surprised that I got sober. Um, my family, you know, it's so funny because they're not alcoholics, but they are. I lived with my grandparents for the last years of their lives to, you know, help them out. And, you know, they're in their 90s. They were born in 19. Both of them were born in 1910. And they were like, uh, this isn't going to affect our drinking because they had, you know, drinks at night. And I was like, no, you know. Um, so they mostly just didn't want me to go to meetings all the time because they wanted me to have family time. Like after the first three months, they're like, this is yeah. enough. Like yeah. Saturdays, you're with us because Saturday we had family dinner. But, uh, you know, I was just. I don't have the standard story where everything went to, you know, to a problem because right, I, I, I just drank so much. I was going to die so fast. I didn't have time to break down those relationships. I didn't have time to screw everything up. I didn't have time to, you know, I didn't have kids. I didn't have a spouse. I didn't have a, you know, a partner. I like, I, I just didn't have those relationships I could screw up. Um, so terribly. And my friend saw such a a change in me when I got sober. I had just gotten a, a job with the Girl Scouts. And I said to a friend, I was I was afraid to go to a meeting. And I said, would you go to a meeting with me to my first meeting? We, we didn't know it was a closed meeting. We dressed up. We wore dresses and makeup and all mm. because we didn't know that that's not required. Uh, we got there late because we didn't understand the parking. Um, and we left at the, there was a coffee break. We didn't know it was a coffee break. We thought the thing was over. We left. Like, so I, you know, we did everything wrong. Right. But you know, my friend who's not an alcoholic, she was like, I said, will you go to an AA meeting? Yes. Yes, I will. Mm -hmm. I'd be happy to do that. And I was lucky that I was sober more, even in the, the first two and a half years where it took me to, to get this sobriety date, I was sober most of the time. I just drank just enough to tamp down those trauma experiences. And what really changed my my sobriety was I went to, on Friday nights, I went to a meeting near the Veterans Hospital um, in Los Angeles. And the veterans would come over and they were starting to come back from the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan. And they couldn't stay sober. And a few of them killed themselves, including someone that I really, really liked. And I got so angry. Because I was like, my sobriety is horrible in the sense that I was like depressed, trauma symptoms all the time, suicidal half the time, you know, just having a lot of difficulty. And they're not getting sober and they're dying. And I got so angry. I said, there has to be something better. So you talk about how you pay it, you know, pay it forward, right? Mm -hmm. Instead of to the person who did for you. And I thought I didn't get sober to be miserable and these guys aren't getting sober at all. There has to be better treatment. Well, I was in graduate school at the time and I changed everything that I was doing and really dove down a path of how can I be of service in a very particular but greater way and find trauma therapies that are sobriety friendly. And that's what I've been doing for the last, I don't know, 15, 20 years. Yeah, well, that's good. We might take a break there and we'll talk about that when we sure. come back. We have another song. This one is called Live It Up uh, by Mental Is Anything.
don't have a million dollars and still want to have a good education for your kid, tune into the Dogs Program. We are the defenders of government schools. 12pm on Saturdays here on 3CR. 855 and AM Dial podcast streaming live on 3cr.org.au and 3CR Digital. We defend government schools because they need it. Uh, welcome back. This is the Living Free Show on 3CR Digital Radio, live streaming on 3cr.org.au forward slash streaming. And today I'm talking with Dr. Constance Schaff about recovery from, from mental health, trauma and addiction issues through evidence-based holistic treatments and solutions. Uh, so Constance, before the uh, break we were talking about you deciding to get serious about study to help. So can you tell us a bit about what you studied and how life how you're applying that now yeah so you know i i saw these veterans who were dying and and i was miserable and and a lot of people weren't getting or staying sober and and i just i was furious because i was like there has to be better treatment than what we're being offered now i didn't go to rehab or anything like that i guess there was some it wasn't a lot when i when i was getting sober but not like there is now but i thought these treatments are failing us and these these um facilities are failing us and and i knew that the people around me needed more than the 12 steps the 12 steps are great for what they do but they don't solve every problem and the book is very clear if you have a physical problem see a physician if you have a a psychiatric problem see a psychologist or a psychiatrist if you have a spiritual problem go to a priest a rabbi a a minister whatever imam whatever is, is your you know cup of tea and so I thought there's got to be better out there. And so I started looking at complementary therapies and um, I was so blessed to be offered, cre- a position was created for me as the director of addiction research and addiction research fellow at a very big uh, uh, treatment facility in a very you know, famous f- treatment facility in Los Angeles in Malibu. And I was allowed to travel anywhere in the world to meet with any researchers doing any work that I was interested in so that I could bring that back. And the culmination of that was the book Ending Addiction for Good, where we laid out the treatment protocol that we used at this very um, expensive uh, treatment facility. And we, we did that on purpose because we didn't want the information to be proprietary. We wanted everyone to know what the real um, the, the real therapies are that work. And what we found is that in addition to traditional psychotherapy and in addiction, addition to 12 steps, which is really a support, that's a mutual aid society, right? The 12 step programs yeah. are mutual aids are mutual aid groups mm. that if you do complementary mental health care practices, it could be acupuncture, music, journaling, narrative work, um, meditation, there are all sorts of these practices. Any one of them will brighten your day, Mm. but doing them together, there is a synergy and they become more than the sum of their parts. And we learned that that's true because of how brain science works. Um, But that to me was liberating because when we started to provide these opportunities to people, their lives really started to change. And people who weren't getting and staying sober were now much more grounded in their recovery and recovering from other issues. Now, you know that this 
that this works, let me give you an example that you would have experienced. And that is if you've had a really bad day and you're stuck in traffic coming home from work and a song you like comes on the radio and you start to sing along, right? And you do your own carpool karaoke and you sing like no one else is listening, right? What happens? You feel better. You yeah. feel better. Exactly. Yeah. You yeah. feel better. That's actually a neurochemical response that's going on in your brain. But imagine if so you and I feel better and it, you know, perks you up and, 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 and it improves your day. But if you do that in an addiction treatment facility from someone who it does not have. Um, so singing releases uh, dopamine, serotonin and oxytocin in the brain and all feel good chemicals. So they give you a natural high. Now, imagine that those feel good chemicals, a natural secretion of them is suppressed because you've been taking drugs and, and being your own chemist. Right. Mm. So you have people who come into a singing session who are literally suicidal, think they're going to die. I don't know why I'm here. I'm, I'm just a, a junkie who's going to die anyway. And they leave so elevated because they have a natural high. Mm. Well, that gets them more engaged in their treatment. Yep. It gets them um, uh, participating longer. It gets them to want to stay. It gets them talking about things that they wouldn't necessarily get to talk about. Because like I said, when I was a little girl, I didn't have the words to describe what was happening to me. And I remember the first two years that I had therapy, I couldn't say the word incest. I, I, I would literally, uh, 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 with my mouth open and could not say the word. And then I'd dissociate and I'm probably not be back in the world for like two days, didn't know what was going on, right? All of that gets bypassed with song. So if you can add into what a person is doing, just some singing in the shower, like literally that's all it takes to improve outcomes. Well, now if you add meditation and, and trauma appropriate meditations, because not everybody can meditate, right? I closed my eyes and I had all the trauma, you know, uh, symptoms come streaming forward. Why? Because trauma is really being stuck in the past. The past feels like it's present even when it's not. And so, you know, when we can add several of these together, we get amazing results. And so I talk about this in the book, Rock to Recovery, uh, music as a catalyst for human transformation. And also in my speaking engagements, I work with a lot with narrative. How do you change your story? Mm -hmm. So, cause I don't know what's true with a capital T, like how the universe was created and all that kind of stuff. I, I don't know, but I do know that there are truths with a little T and if it's true enough, I can change my life. So, you know, I had said to a friend, I was like, well, you know, men, men don't want fat women. They assault fat women. He looked at me, the guy's literally a rock star. And he was like, that's not true. That's not true. What? And it landed. I was like, you know what? That's not true. I will tell you, I lost 75 pounds. I've kept it off for over four years. Mm. I didn't do anything different. I didn't eat different. I didn't exercise more. I didn't get a new gym membership. I didn't mm. No, I just understood that being a mound of flesh that nobody could literally physically move was not the best way to live my life. Mm. So if we can change those narratives, if we can change that truth with the little T truths, it automatically pivots us. Mm. And we live a different life. And that's what I'm so passionate about. Yeah. Um, I think the other thing uh, I know that you're interested in is um, tapping into indigenous, um, not so much cultural treatment, but I guess their philosophy of, of living to yes. help understand 
um, problems that they may be facing as well. Yeah, that so, could help us as well. Yeah, so Australia and New Zealand lead the way in this. Thank goodness the U.S. is a little bit behind. But one of the things that we're learning in psychology, a little late, but we're getting there, is that we have to decolonize it. That trying to put individuals who don't come up, you know, who are not raised in a very standard Western perspective, you know, of talk therapy, um, that that doesn't work. You know, in the United States, uh, there are very few Native Americans go to uh, psychotherapy or to rehab or anything like that. And those who do usually quit after the first session. It's overwhelming, the number who quit. Why? Because they're not seen for who they are. And I had to... I've lived overseas a lot and I had the wonderful opportunity to uh, live uh, for a little while, stay for a little while in Namibia. And I got to see um, their perspective on what mental health is. And I got to live in India and I got to see what their perspective is, you know, and I I saw a man who in the United States would be considered, you know, uh, clinically mentally ill and they considered him touched by God and made room for him in their society And so I think it's very important that we make room for indigenous mental health practices and perspectives in all of our treatment. Um, And, and we have to get out of the way, you know, Western providers have to get out of the way a little bit. I, I, you know, uh, was telling you before the interview that I'm Jewish and I went to a provider once who was, you know, very well, well regarded for trauma therapy. But I said, I don't say, cottage for my father's yard side and and she the whole rest of the session was me educating her and I was like no I I I don't have that's not why I'm here you know and and having that experience I was like wow we have to do better because inclusion is not you can do what I do if you want to be like me inclusion is I see you and I'm going to make room for you who and how you are and how can I support whatever it is that you know you need for your own recovery. And maybe that's nothing. I mean, maybe I don't have what you need, mm. but it's, it's well-being, right? Recovery is, is really a return to well-being is not the same for everyone. And there are so many beautiful perspectives on how we should be in the world it is not my place to say uh, no to that. And so I created the Institute for Complementary and Indigenous Mental Health Research really to hold the door. I don't do, I don't do indigenous mental health research. I'm not indigenous. To hold the door open and say, you are welcome here. Your people deserve, you know, you, you don't have to be the same as me. You deserve recovery. And what can I do to hold open doors so that everyone Everyone, veterans, women, indigenous people, I don't care who you are, LGBTQIA+, I I don't care who you are. You deserve to live a beautiful life, and I will do whatever I can to offer whatever services I can or refer you. My favorite thing to do is give a referral. Mm. Refer you to someone who can help you, who understands what you've been through. Mm. Do you want to talk a bit more about um, trauma and I guess how how you were helped in dealing with your trauma? So trauma is really interesting. Trauma has traditionally been treated with um, talk therapy. It doesn't work. It doesn't help at all. And what we've come to understand, there's a beautiful book by Vander Kolk, uh, The Body Keeps the Score. Yep. And that 
trauma actually is stored in the body. And this is something I learned again in Namibia. If a bird, say, is attacked by a predator and is not killed, it will go off into the bush, under a bush or under a rock or whatever, will puff up its feathers and shake and tremble to move the trauma through its body. They do not carry trauma like we do. It's called shaking medicine there. And you'll see something similar in Chinese, traditional Chinese medicine. Um, you'll see something similar, similar understanding in Ayurveda because these groups all observe natural processes. So when Vanderkolk came out with the, you know, a Western idea of this, it says, well, the, the trauma gets trapped in your body. And so what I did was called um, somatic therapy. I used a, a, something called radical aliveness, which is based out of Los Angeles. Um, but any sort of somatic therapy is to move, is to shake the body up, literally shake it, move it, and to move the trauma out. And it gave me that in addition to my recovery. I can't do anything without being sober because I'm just dead without, right? Mm. 50 years old. I can't drink yeah. two liters of liquor yeah. a day. Like my body can't handle that. But this this somatic experiencing it moved it moved that trauma out of my body you know i i had to have a hysterectomy they were like well we don't know why you're you're i was i was hemorrhaging they said we don't know why that's happening it was idiopathic no i was like i tell you why it's happening mm. you know i was like cuz that's where my you know if you put your your hands on the bottom of my of my uh my pelvis it was ice cold like literally ice cold i was like i tell you why that happened you know and there's something called aces adverse childhood experiences there's a lot of research it's not just psychological issues there are all sorts of of biomedical issues that come from having a parent who's incarcerated um experiencing discrimination in the united states we had another school shooting today yeah i mean they're mm. uh, weekly it seems you know and and so that kind of trauma how do you have, how do you, I, I saw a video, a TikTok of this little kid and mom was teaching the little kid to hold his quote unquote bulletproof backpack in front of his face, right? Other people don't live with that. How does, how does that generation not have some sort of trauma from, from all this? So, so somatic experiencing moves this out and it changed my life. I, now I'm in the present. I'm like, oh yeah, my dad is dead. My dad's been dead, I don't know, 26, 27 years at this point. I don't, I, he's not going to hurt me. I'm just fine. And I'm here all the time. I used to feel him breathing down my neck I, 20 years sober. Mm, yeah. Somatic experiencing cleared all of that. And, and, and it is the beautiful thing about it is most cultural groups have something that is what we call somatics. Yeah. Yes, uh, we have a lot to learn. We have a lot to learn. Yes. Um, okay, looking at the time, we're, we're just about at, at time. Um, is there anything you'd like to, to add that we haven't covered? That I just want to say to anyone who has experienced, you know, problems with addiction themselves or in their family or who has experienced trauma or has, you know, a relative who, you know, a, a friend, a loved one who has experienced trauma, that there's hope. We, when I got sober, you know, 25 years ago, we didn't know what we know now. And 
you know, I've, I've dedicated my life to, to finding these, these therapeutics that have always existed. We just had to learn how to put them together. And, um, there's hope for real, genuine recovery, and you can have a life that you never dreamed of. I should have been an overdose or a suicide. That's what happens to, to women like yeah. me. Yeah. You know, a, a lot of us end up as sex workers and so forth. And uh, I, that didn't happen because I didn't want my dad to win. And I was like, we're good. We're gonna recover, not just me. My life, you know, my life is just one life. It, you know, it matters. It doesn't matter. Whatever. It's not, you know, the the big deal. But if I recover and you recover and you recover and you recover. Now we have a sea change. Yeah. Now we have a sea change. And I just want people to know there really is hope because it feels hopeless, right? You and I both know it feels hopeless and it doesn't have to be. Yeah. Thank you. If you'd like to find out more about Dr. Constance Scharf and the kind of topics she covers, uh, you can take a look at her website, which is constanceschaff.com. And we'll add some more links in our podcast as well. So that's about all we've got time for today. So I'd like to thank uh, Constance for sharing her story with us and talking about addiction and complex PTSD and how 12-step programs and complementary therapies can help recovery. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it. No worries. Uh, I hope you'll be able to join us again next week when we plan to feature Robert, uh, who's a member of Allen and Family Groups, and he'll be dialing in from Ohio, USA. Coming up next, we have Belenoir, but unfortunately, Uncle Telgum Choco Edwards is unwell, So we've lined up some of his songs and we'll play them at the end of this show. Thanks for listening. Stay safe and stay tuned now for more Radical Radio on 3CR. If this interview has raised issues for you and you need help, then you can call Lifeline on 131114 or Beyond Blue on 1300 224 636 for assistance. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.